Welcome to The Current, a podcast series about digital transformation produced by Forbes Brand Voice with Dell Technologies and Intel. I'm your host, Michael Copeland. On this segment, we have with us Natalie Gateno, who is the co-founder and managing design partner at the Future Cities Lab here in San Francisco and the chair of the graduate architecture programs at the California College of the Arts. Uh, Natalie, welcome. Thank you. We sit here in the dog patch neighborhood of San Francisco, which is known for shipbuilding and bar fights, I think, in the past, although it's changing quite a bit. And uh, we're in your lab, as it were, in the Future Cities Lab, which is uh, we're surrounded by models and machines and all kinds of things. So it looks like you guys are busy building the future of cities. Yeah, um, you're in our office right now We where we basically design um, and build um, a lot of our installations um, and our kind of um, interactive permanent and temporary work. Um, I want to get into the work and I'll, I'll just give our listeners a flavor for kind of what it is and we're going to get into some detail. But you've done a project that you call 4,480 pixels in space. There's another one called Data Grove and yet another called Energy Farm. We're going to get into a project that you did in San Francisco called Murmur Wall. Um, you studied architecture and you teach architecture, but are do you call yourself an architect with a capital A? And, and how do you describe what it is you do here at Future Cities Lab? That's a tricky question. Uh, yes, I am trained as an architect. Pretty much everyone who's in our office and works uh, works in this team is usually trained as an architect in some shape or form. Um, I would say that the work that we do engages the making of space. Um, and whether that makes me an architect, a designer, an artist, a maker, an innovator, a thinker, I, I would say that those all kind of bundle into one. All of the above. <laughs> all right, that's fair. Uh, you're originally, you were born and raised in Athens, which is one of the most beautiful, historic, and important cities in the world. And I, so given, you know, its place in the world, back, you know, give us a, a sort of lay of the land. Like, how has technology over history, and this is a big question, but like, how has it played a role in cities? The way that I feel and kind of think of technology in in the shaping of cities is more through the technology of making things. So the ability to build higher, build taller, build out of rock, build out of stone, build out of steel, those are the things that essentially shape the way that cities are formed. So what fascinates me about Athens, and that's the ancient side of Athens, is the, the technology of making um, the column, the pediment, the, you know, essentially the Parthenon and all the kind of, um, let's say, ancient and historic sites. The technology is actually the thing that eventually led to the building of our current cities, which essentially would be the future cities. How do our technologies today kind of interact differently with cities? Because you guys work a lot with with data, with computers, with, you know, you know, whether that's in design or whether that's in kind of the installation itself. So the technologies of ancient um, Athens or, you know, name your favorite city in, in Asia, Beijing or, or parts of Japan, um, those were, like you say, for the construction of things um, and also the health and safety of things, the sanitary sewer. But how did today's technology, and in particular digital technologies or even new materials, how is their relationship with cities different than maybe in the past? A typical example that an architect with a capital A would probably give you is that um, the elevator essentially led to the advent of density and high-rise and 
essentially, the forming of cities as we know them. In our eyes, technology has already obviously permeated every aspect of our, you know, present day lives. It's also permeated our built environment and our urban environment. Our buildings have sensors to tell us when to turn lights on, when to turn lights off, if it's too hot, if it's too cold. But those are very kind of isolated and discrete elements. They're kind of standalone pieces in our urban landscape. They don't necessarily communicate to each other. Right. The thermostat still lives by itself on a wall or maybe in my home. Yeah. But if I, you know, if there was a way to actually start thinking of our cities as these kind of ecologies of technologies that actually do have the ability to talk to one another, share information, trigger one another, communicate, then potentially then the city of the future is one where technology is completely embedded in our built environment and also able to kind of create the spaces that we live in. You guys in in your work um, ask some unorthodox questions um, about our cities. For example, you pose these questions in the thinking that leads into your projects. What will the city around us be thinking, seeing, and feeling in the near future? How will its desires and fears manifest? I didn't know cities felt or, you know, had desires and fears. So unpack that for us. And and, and how does that help inform your thinking and, and the experiences and the installations that you guys do? So the particular question that you're kind of you know, bringing up, I think is, um, is one that we've just recently kind of tapped into, where we're really interested in the way that social media and social media data is completely nested in our phones or our screens or our kind of, let's say, digital ether environment. And our interest is in kind of tapping into that information and seeing what it means and what it could do. So the questions that you're, you're raising are ones that we posed for our project Murmur Wall, which was located in um, San Francisco at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts and is now located right in front of City Hall in Palo Alto. And it was a series of questions uh, that we raised because we were tapping into trending search terms in a half-mile radius. So basically, Murmur Wall is a lattice, a kind of steel and acrylic lattice that has a series of LEDs embedded in it that kind of transmit information on these uh, 3D printed screens of trending search terms that people are searching for in a half mile radius. So I walk up to the wall. Does the wall look like a wall or does it look like something else? It looks like a mesh, a surface that has a couple of strange-looking creatures caught in it (laughs) that um, have a series of screens that may say Trump Jr. They may say uh, emails. They may say Russia. So they basically transmit or represent on these screens uh, what people are searching for in a half-mile radius. So it's actually kind of uh, giving us a sense of what people are curious about, what they're looking for, what they're looking to learn about. Um, And for us, that's also indicative of things that will matter in the future because that's kind of what the city is kind of searching for and trying to understand more about. I see. So the city as this organism, like you say, which is made up of individuals with phones in their pocket, apparently searching for things. Yeah. And to a certain extent, I think for us, that was more of a contextual response. Um, the installation was originally, uh, originally located in downtown San Francisco, right by the Moscone Center. So essentially, where a lot of conventioners, tourists move around looking for San Francisco and trying to understand the city. So this murmur wall was supposed to kind of whisper back to them like, oh, you know, you're at this convention on orthodontics in the future. 
we're actually all talking about these other things, whether right. it's, you know, pop culture and the giants or whether it's, you know, uh, a next kind of political event that's happening. So during the elections, it was a really interesting murmur wall. One of the features that we gave the murmur wall is that you could actually whisper to it. So you could tag it. You could jump on your phone and kind of send a message to it. And it almost became an um, urban graffiti wall. Yeah, tag it in the graffiti sense of the word. Yeah, ah, exactly. Cool. So you could go up there and say, hi, my name's Natalie. Or you could say something more political or cultural or social. But you could essentially kind of send a message to it. It would course through the system, come up on the screens, and then disappear back into the city. What did you guys learn from that? And, and what does that, how does that kind of, what does that imply about cities of the future? I mean, do you think that we start to move through space? Um, I don't mean outer space, but just space as, um, with this, con and, and we do anyway, if we all have smartphones in our pocket, but do we move through, you know, our lives with this constant connectivity and then how does that inform the environment around us? And then what happens? I think we're, you're right. We're already moved through space that way, right? We're all looking at our phones when we're crossing a street. We're all like, you know, completely immersed in that environment. Um, and I think what we're trying to do is basically say, well, that environment can actually become your urban experience. So instead of it becoming a kind of individualized, isolated um, kind of condition or situation, it could actually become part of the populace. It could actually become shared information. It could become public space. So we're actually seeing the kind of ability of information and data to basically start shaping public space, because ultimately it is the forum that we're actually conversing in, albeit by tagging with our thumbs, but that forum could actually become let's say, going back to your question earlier, the that historic happens. forum yeah, yeah, yeah. of actually conversing and actually having that debate in front of whether it's the murmur wall or whatever, um, that you could actually have that kind of back and forth. And we've it's been interesting. We've seen people basically go up to the murmur wall and see something and then type it in their phone and figure out, well, why is that up there? Like, what is that about? Why do I need to know about that? So it almost becomes a bit of a kind of a place to basically get your local information. Right, right. Does this make you think that our expectation of our cities and our homes and our buildings changes? Like, what, are, what does this imply about what we expect now from our built environment going forward? I definitely think that our, we're going to be expecting more of our built environment. Like, you can see that in every... I don't know, four-year-old or five-year-old is trying to swipe the TV that doesn't swipe, right? <laughs> right? Or like thinking that surfaces have information. So I think there's definitely kind of an expectation that there's more information embedded in our environments that right now we're in that kind of interesting cusp where some things do have more information and some things don't. And I think for us, it's more of like, how can we think beyond the screen? Think of it beyond just the kind of one-to-one, -one just giving of information, um, how could we actually start thinking of it as a spatial experience? Well, not just spatial, but what about also this sort of two-way experience? Do we expect, like you say, you know, the feelings and the kind of fears of a city, do we expect this kind of feedback loop from what used to be, you know, inanimate bricks and mortar, et cetera? I think we do. I mean, we already expect our buildings to cool themselves when we need them to. We already expect them to change the lights and create our mood for us, depending on, you know, what we told it we were feeling like when we were on our way home. Right. Right. So I think we're already... I'm not honest with my feelings when I come... <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. Um, I think it's more of a question, you know, of can that actually completely change the, the spaces that we're designing and building? 
The Current is produced by Forbes Brand Voice with Dell Technologies and Intel. How do you feel about the transition from 2D, whether that's your, maybe you guys do sketch it out on paper at the beginning, to, you know, 3D, to putting it out of a 3D printer or making a model of it? And, and when does it become necessary and, and, and how do you guys think about that? For us, the relationship between 2D and 3D is, is constant. <laughs> we sketch something, we make a little kind of, you know, glue and chip model, and then we kind of sketch it out again. We put it in the computer. We may 3D print a part of it to be able to figure out how something connects to something else. So it's very much a back and forth process because ultimately most of the work that we're currently doing essentially gets built. So we have a lot of speculative work, which is more of the kind of render and the image and the kind of idea. But a lot of the responsive uh, work that we've been doing is very much kind of prototyping for production. But you're not strapping on VR rigs and then, you know, just like, okay, let's, let's, you know, walk through this now and see how it works. Well, we did that for Lightweave and we did that, um, for an event that we kind of were invited to basically push the limits of that representation. So we were really interested in testing kind of VR, AR as a way to actually experience an artwork, in this case, Lightweave in Washington, D.C., and understand what it would be like to actually be walking along this kind of slowly responsive and kind of uh, changing artwork that was essentially responding to infrastructure. So do you think VR and AR, their applications, um, more broadly for your kind of work and and also for the rest of us thinking about the work or experiencing it, experiencing it does VR and AR have a big, bigger and bigger role to play? I think so. And there's definitely conversations in architecture, interior design, and the kind of design disciplines as to what that role is. So for us, VR and AR is an opportunity to really be able to kind of immerse ourselves in highly responsive spaces. Like we've had a really tricky time understanding like, okay, when something responds to clapping or sound or pollution or people moving by it, what would that look like? What would that feel like? We have no way of actually knowing it until we make the whole thing. Um, So for us, that kind of temporal aspect of our work is one that where you think VR and AR has a kind of interesting kind of representational opportunities for us to be able to kind of understand it. Let me ask you about some other technologies and how they might impact cities. Um, Driverless cars, autonomous things. So driverless cars and autonomous kind of vehicles or drones or other modes of moving things without people driving them, (laughs) Um, I think for us are much more a kind of a technology. So the same way that the car shaped the city with roads and turning radii that work with I don't know a sixty mile per hour like speed. So the way that um, cars shape the city as we know it. Um, we see driverless cars and drones and the like basically starting to have an imprint on the way that, you know, we won't need that big highway because we can, you know, make our way down to Los Angeles more efficiently. Or we won't need to, you know, have the street in front of our, your apartment because you won't need a park. So there's all of those kind of other repercussions that for us are really interesting when it comes to those kinds of technologies. Data. 
packets of data flitting about um, between buildings or between people? How does that impact cities? So I think for us, the interest is the in in the kind of data. Uh, data is a technology that can impact a city. Um, is there its ephemerality? The fact that it doesn't necessarily have like a kind of tectonic material imprint on a city that is built in there. So um, for us, it's much more in in the communication of the buildings, in our ability to read infrastructure and kind of understand infrastructure. So for example, um, our instinctive, let's say, um, understanding of running to catch the train because you can feel that gush of air coming up through the tunnel or the rattling of the tracks. All of those are indices that we have, you know, we our bodies know how to read, but now we do it through our phone because our phone tells us that you have two minutes and 23 seconds to make it. So the loss of that instinctive quality of our cities through our access to data, I think is something that we're interested in kind of exploring more with our work. So can something change light or pulse more if um, a train is arriving or can it actually start becoming an index for the city itself? Oh, so we have different kind of iterations of these things that we're used to, but they happen in kind of newer ways. So, for example, Lightweave um, is responding to the vibration of trains above this this bridge, this underpass. Um, and as trains approach, the installation will indicate that that's occurring. So if you live close by, then instead of feeling that gush of air, you can say, okay, that tempo of light is one that I understand that I missed the train. <laughs> I mean, there's no need for I can go get right. coffee before oh, I run. Too late. Um, let me ask you about another technology. We talked about social media, but software in general. I mean, you talk about cities as places that are these kind of organic living systems. Um, does that system require massive software, and and how does it communicate? I have no idea how it communicates. <laughs> um, I think the experiments that we have been trying to kind of deploy through our installations are basically ways of leveraging social media to create public again. So social media right now exists in isolation. I will tweet or text and send something out to the ether, but I'm still alone doing that more likely. So is there a way to actually trigger a conversation or to actually have a back and forth? So where in DC is that? So north of Union Station. So that's where Metro North and Amtrak, like that's that V uh, that oh. goes into Union Station. And there's about like five of these, but we're doing one um, L Street. Is there a city that exists in the future today or kind of more in the future than, than other places? That's a tricky question. Um, on the one hand, one would think, you know, the efficiency and the sleekness and the kind of cleanliness of a place like Tokyo totally seems to be the city of the future. But in some ways, it should be the city of now because it is a lot of the, the technologies that are deployed and the kind of innovations are there right now. I think for me, cities of the future are ones that are really kind of dealing with a lot of pressures, whether that's density or whether it's um, uh, stratification of people in different kind of income or social kind of strata, um, cities that have that kind of really kind of intense pressure to them, whether it's environmental as well um, or social. So a place like we talked about Mexico City earlier um, or Hong Kong, cities that are really kind of pushing that limit, I think, are um, really interesting to us as future models for the way that we may have to live, <laughs> whether we want it or not. I mean, you guys are the, the future cities lab. And are the solutions to those cities, are, are they coming into focus or I mean, are you optimistic about us being able to tackle some of those problems with the tools we have available, you know, at least at the moment? 
A lot of um, people call our work utopian. Um, others call it dystopian. And I think we enjoy the fact that we have to straddle that line. We don't think it can be one or the other. I think our interest is in testing out ways to actually thrive in adverse conditions. So sea level rise will happen. We could build a taller wall, um, we could build a thicker wall, or we could find a way to live in flood and live in water. And how could we as designers, architects, engineers, design a future where that could actually be a good thing, where you would need more water or you would need more density and that that would actually be a desirable thing to have. Well, Natalie Gateno, co-founder and managing design partner of Future Cities Lab, thank you so much. This has been fascinating, and um, I want to go visit Athens now. I very much enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Current, a podcast series about digital transformation produced by Forbes Brand Voice with Dell Technologies and Intel. Let Dell Technologies Cloud Solutions, powered by Intel, show you the power of digital transformation. Intel inside, powerful productivity outside.